0: This is Space Time, Series 23, Episode 114, for broadcast on the 28th of October, 2020. Coming up on Space Time, OSIRIS-REx successfully touches down on the asteroid Bennu, Pluto's snow-capped mountains, and another space junk near miss. All that and more coming up on Space Time.
1: Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary.
0: NASA's OSIRIS-REx spacecraft has successfully touched down on the surface of the boulder-strewn asteroid Bennu, collecting samples of the space rock's regolith before returning to orbit. The dust and pebbles picked up during the touch-and-go event will be returned to Earth in 2023. The 492-metre-wide asteroid Bennu is a Neo Near-Earth object, currently around 321 million kilometres away, in an intrinsically dynamically unstable orbit which intersects with and crosses Earth's orbit around the Sun. And that makes Bennu a potential impactor. In fact, it currently has a 1 in 2,700 chance of eventually colliding with the Earth sometime during the next century. The resulting impact would have the equivalent power of a 1,200 megaton thermonuclear device. Not enough to destroy the entire planet, but certainly enough to wipe out a small country. The 2,110 kilogram OSIRIS-REx spacecraft was launched from the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida on September 8, 2016, arriving at Bennu in December 2018. The probe's spending a total of three years orbiting the asteroid, mapping its surface and geology, studying its evolution, its composition, its chemistry and mineral makeup but certainly the highlight of the mission is the touch-and-go descent and sample collection. The spacecraft spent four hours slowly descending from orbit to a checkpoint just 125 metres above the rock-strewn surface. There, it undertook the first of two engine burns, this one designed to manoeuvre into position directly over the Nightingale sample collection site. Ten minutes later, the spacecraft fired its thrusters for a second time, This matchpoint burn was designed to slow its descent to match the asteroid's speed and rotation for the final contact with the surface. It then continued a treacherous 11-minute coast past a boulder the size of a two-storey house called Mount Doom to eventually touch down in a clear spot in a basketball-sized crater on Bennu's northern hemisphere. The actual touchdown contact point, one of few relatively clear areas on this heavily rock-covered surface, was no larger than the size of a couple of car parking spots. Osiris Rex then used its 3.35-metre robotic arm to position its collector head on the surface and fire a shot of gas, kicking up dust and pebbles which were then quickly scooped up for return to Earth. Scientists are now determining whether a second touch-and-go will be undertaken on January 12th at the backup sample site known as Osprey, which is another relatively boulder-free area inside a crater, this one close to Bennu's equator. OSIRIS-REx is slated to leave orbit around Bennu in March 2021, with a sample return capsule being jettisoned for a parachute landing in the Utah desert on September 24th, 2023. Glenn Nagel from NASA's Deep Space Communications Network near Canberra, which was the primary station for much of the touch and go, says the operation went just like clockwork. So the spacecraft
2: successfully touched down uh, in this area, not much bigger than the size of about two car parking spaces and squeeze down between building-sized boulders to be able to go and grab some samples of the surface of asteroid Bennu, which is considered to be one of the early building blocks of the solar system, a sort of a time capsule for the way that planets began their formation about four and a half billion years ago.
0: And this was a really tricky operation because there were huge boulders all around the landscape there. So the
2: spacecraft, of course, is, for the last two years, has been doing a high-resolution map of the entire 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 surface of the asteroid and actually in some areas down to just a few millimeters per pixel resolution. So the maps were very high quality so that the spacecraft could actually recognize specific features around and in Nightingale Crater and navigate down. And as we were getting data back, Mission team were calling through that the spacecraft was within a fraction of a metre of the position where it should be and was maneuvering down very, very safely at literally only centimetres per second, then down to millimetres per second to make that touch, fire at nitrogen gas canister, and to scoop up some of that material from the surface. Data, of course, has been streaming back to our tracking station here in Canberra, and the science team will build up a greater knowledge of how much they've collected. I have more pictures and more data on the surface of this amazing little world.
0: DSN Canberra played a big role in all this.
2: Yes, so today, along with our sister station in California, our antennas were focused on the signals coming back from OSIRIS-REx. Our control room in Canberra was operating those antennas in California and here in Canberra and making sure that information could come back. And it was at various times there was a potential for the signal to drop out during the descent and our teams would have to reacquire that signal because the last thing the mission science team needs is for their anxiety to go a lot higher if the call drops out. So everything went absolutely textbook. The spacecraft behaved properly. The mission team was very happy and our CSRO team here in Canberra did an awesome job ensuring that all those signals came through. We're going to be spending the next few hours, and days and weeks collecting more information to make sure that everything is right for the spacecraft to return its samples back to Earth in September 2023.
0: There's got to be a lot of preparation that DSN Canberra have to do for, for something like this. You must be rehearsing stuff all the time.
2: Just like an astronaut might train for a mission into deep space, we also have to do our own training because every spacecraft, you know, out of the 40 missions we're supporting right now, they all have different personalities, different traits in the way that they communicate What to be able to handle different parts of their mission. So our team has to be ready for every single scenario that could possibly happen. Whether a signal drops out, the spacecraft goes into safe mode, or some other anomaly may occur. And we are always the first point of contact in the Deep Space Network to put things in place, to bring the spacecraft back to life make sure we're in contact with the mission team, of course, so that they can alert their science team and their engineers to bring your spacecraft back to full health. Fortunately, with the Cyrus Rex, it's been actually a really reliable spacecraft and really quite amazing. We've been part of this journey since it launched in 2016, its arrival at the asteroid in 2018. We've been right through its journey and now this capture of material from the surface and we'll be with it until it returns to Earth in another three years from now
0: parachuting hopefully down into the Utah desert.
2: Yes, and having those samples back on Earth, we'll be able to really learn a lot more using the whole suite of instruments that are available on our planet with lots of scientists being able to study it and analyse this material in different ways so that we can really learn just the nature of these sorts of objects. And Bennu has particular interest, apart from the fact that it's an early building block of our solar system, it's also an asteroid that crosses the Earth's orbit on a regular basis. And there's a potential in the year 2156 that it gets closer than probably normally would. So we want to know whether it poses any kind of threat, knowing more about its composition, density of those materials we can potentially know what to do about an object like this before it gets too close for comfort.
0: Yeah, one in 2,700 chance of an impact sometime in the next century.
2: Yes, and so this uh, asteroid is going to continue to be studied for uh, many, many years to come with all this data that's come back, and perhaps even future missions, sending out a spacecraft to put a radio beacon on the surface. they have already been discussing those ideas so that we can track it with much higher resolution.
0: Keep a very close eye on Bennu.
2: Yeah, so the object, of course, is like an ice skater, you know, spinning on on the ice there. Depending on whether you're spreading your arms or pulling them in, your rotation rate can increase. So this object, as it accumulates more material, There's also other material being thrown off. So the spin rate has actually, uh, I think, will increase over time.
0: Here, there's a Guinness World Record for Osiris-Rex as well.
2: Yes, the spacecraft is now in the official Guinness Book of Records for the tightest orbit, the smallest orbit around, the smallest object ever to be explored in our solar
0: system. That's Glenn Nagel from NASA's Deep Space Communications Network Station near Canberra. And this is Space Time. Still to come, a study of Pluto's snow-capped mountains and another space junk near miss. All that and more still to come on Space Time. In 2015, NASA's New Horizons spacecraft discovered spectacular snow-capped mountains on Pluto which were strikingly similar to mountains on Earth. Such a landscape has never been observed anywhere else in the solar system. However, while atmospheric temperatures on Earth decrease with altitude, on Pluto they heat up with altitude as a result of solar radiation. So with that in mind, where does the ice come from? Well. Now a report in the journal Nature Communications has determined that the snow on the 2,377-kilometre-wide dwarf planet's mountain ranges actually consists of frozen methane. Traces of this gas are present in Pluto's atmosphere in the same way as water vapour is present in Earth's atmosphere. To understand how the same landscape could be produced in such different conditions, the authors used a climate model for the dwarf planet, which revealed that due to its peculiar dynamics, Pluto's upper atmosphere is rich in gaseous methane. Therefore, only the peaks of Pluto's mountains are high enough to reach this methane-enriched zone where the gas can condense forming snowcaps. At lower altitudes, the air is simply too low in methane for ice to form. The new findings could also explain why Pluto's thick methane glaciers bristle with spectacular craggy ridges, unlike Earth's flat, water-ice-based glaciers. New Horizons was launched on January 19, 2006, from the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida aboard an Atlas V rocket. The probe made history on July 14, 2015, when it became the first spacecraft to visit Pluto, flying just 12,500 kilometres above the dwarf planet's surface. The spacecraft also studied Pluto's binary partner, Charon, and their four moons, Styx, Nix, Kerberos and Hydra. Pluto is one of the largest known bodies in the Kuiper Belt, a ring of frozen worlds, comets and icy debris circling the Sun out beyond the orbit of Neptune. The spacecraft's next encounter was on January 1st, 2019, when it undertook a close flyby of the 30-kilometre-wide Kuiper Belt object, 2014 MU69 Ultima Thule later given its official name Arakov, meaning sky in the Native American Powhatan language of the Tidewater region of Virginia and Maryland. This is Space Time. Still to come, another space junk near miss, and later in the science report, a new study shows global warming is now increasing temperatures even at the very bottom of the oceans. All that and more still to come on Space Time. A disused Soviet-era satellite and a spent Chinese rocket upper stage have narrowly missed a major orbital collision in the skies south of New Zealand. The near miss has again highlighted the growing dangers posed by space junk, which has the potential to ultimately make space simply too dangerous to operate in. The organisation which first spotted the problem, Leo Labs, says it was impossible to intervene to prevent the collision since both objects are dead and can't be maneuvered. The Silicon Valley startup tracks spacecraft and orbital debris in LEO or low-Earth orbit using radars in Alaska, Texas and New Zealand. And it has plans to build a new phased array radar in Costa Rica to track objects as small as two centimetres across in low-inclination orbits. The company's been using its radar network to track the orbital paths of the Soviet and Chinese space junk as they passed overhead three to four times every day the data suggested that these two widely tumbling and out-of-control objects had a 10% chance of collision 991 kilometres above Antarctica's Weddell Sea. Eventually, they just managed to slip past each other without hitting somewhere between 8 and 43 metres apart. An extremely close call. Had they impacted, the explosion would have been the equivalent of detonating 14 tonnes of TNT and would have sent thousands of chunks of debris flying in all directions. The Chinese CZ-4CRB was the third stage of a Long March 4 rocket used to launch the Yogang-8 military spy satellite from China's Zhaiquan Satellite Launch Centre back on December 15, 2009. The Soviet Cosmos-2004 was launched from the Plesetsk Cosmodrome some 800 kilometres north of Moscow in February 1989 aboard a Cosmos-3M rocket. It was part of the Soviet PAS navigation and data relay constellation. The whole incident highlights the growing dangers of space junk and debris in orbit around the Earth. The first major satellite collision occurred on February tenth, twenty 2009, when the Iridium-33 telecommunications satellite collided with the deactivated 950-kilogram Russian Cosmos 2251 satellite that collision occurred some 800 kilometers above northern Siberia at a relative speed of 11.7 kilometers per second, or 42,120 kilometers an hour, destroying both spacecraft and creating a cloud of debris containing hundreds of thousands of pieces of shrapnel. The most recent event was in January 2020, when the disused Russian spy satellite the Cosmos 2491 was accidentally hit by a piece of space junk, bringing to at least 10 major fragments. The International Space Station is routinely forced to manoeuvre out of the way of space junk, the crew often needing to seek refuge in their Soyuz capsules in the event of a collision and the need to undertake an emergency escape. This year alone, the space stations had to undertake three such emergency avoidance manoeuvres. But to date, the worst incident polluting space with deadly shrapnel wasn't an accident, but deliberate. On January 11, 2007, China conducted an anti-satellite missile test using a DF-21 ballistic missile launched from the Xichang Satellite Launch Centre to deliberately blow up a disused Chinese weather satellite for no other reason than to demonstrate to the rest of the world that they could do it. The missile slammed head-on into the 750-kilogram one FY1C series weather satellite at an altitude of 865 kilometres, travelling at a relative speed of 8 kilometres per second, smashing both spacecraft into a potentially deadly debris cloud containing hundreds of thousands of bits of shrapnel. The event remains the largest ever recorded creation of space debris in history, with well over 2,000 pieces of trackable-sized debris catalogued in the immediate aftermath. China's communist government was condemned by other nations including the United States, Britain, Japan, Russia and Australia for dramatically worsening the problem of space junk and increasing the dangers it poses to people and satellites in orbit. And those fees were justified on January 22, 2013 when a Russian laser-ranging satellite was struck by debris from the 2007 Chinese missile test, damaging the spacecraft and changing its orbit and spin rate. One of the big fears of orbital collisions are known as cascade events, where bits of space junk slam into satellites, creating more debris, which then slams into other spacecraft, creating even more debris, and so on and so forth. First proposed by NASA scientist Donald Kessler in 1978, this Kessler syndrome, as it's now called, involves a runaway chain reaction of collisions exponentially increasing the amount of debris orbiting the Earth. It could eventually reach a point where the distribution of debris could render space activities and the use of satellites in specific orbital ranges impractical for many generations. The United States Strategic Space Command is currently tracking more than 18,000 artificial objects in orbit above the Earth. Of these, only around 2,500 are operational satellites. The rest are disused spacecraft and spent rocket stages. But these are only objects large enough to be tracked from the ground. Current estimates suggest there's something like 950,000 bits of space junk a centimetre or more in size and a staggering 180 million bits of debris a centimetre or smaller currently orbiting the Earth. And these objects are all travelling at orbital speeds of 28,000 kilometres an hour. This is Space Time. Today's edition of Spacetime is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com space. That's tryexpressvpn.com space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com space to learn more. You're listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making use in science this week with the Science Report. Scientists have found that global warming is now increasing temperatures even at the very bottom of the oceans. A new study reported in the journal Geophysical Research Letters shows a significant warming trend of around 0.02 to 0.04 degrees Celsius over the decade between 2009 and 2019. The findings are based on hourly temperature recordings from moorings anchored at four depths in the Atlantic Ocean's Argentine Basin off the coast of Uruguay. The depths represent a range around the average ocean depth of 3,682 metres or 12,080 feet, with the shallowest at 1,360 metres or 4,460 feet and the deepest at 4,757 metres or 15,600 feet. The authors say the increase is consistent with warming trends in the shallow ocean associated with anthropogenic climate change. A new study has found that healthy life expectancy in Australia and New Zealand, that's the number of years a person can expect to live in good health, has increased steadily over the past three decades to 70 years in Australia and 69.4 years in New Zealand. But the research reported in the Lancet Medical Journal shows that healthy life expectancy hasn't risen as much as overall life expectancy, which is now 82.9 years in Australia and 81.8 in New Zealand, indicating that people are living for more years in poor health. The findings come from the Global Burden of Disease Study, a large-scale international study involving researchers from more than 150 countries. The first of Australia's new loyal wingman unmanned aircraft prototypes will fly before the end of the year. The new locally designed, developed and built drones, which are being developed with help from Boeing's Phantom Works, are designed to use a range of different mission-specific exchangeable nose cone pods. They'll provide additional defence, intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance capabilities, acting as scouts, or for challenging enemy fire if attacked the new UAVs have a range of more than 3,700 kilometres and will act as a force multiplier supporting manned aircraft, such as fighter aircraft including the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, the F-A-18 ENF Super Hornets and E-A-18G Growlers. They'll also provide a supporting role for frontline support aircraft such as kc 38 Aerial Refuelers and E-7A Wedgetail AWAC Early Warning and Control aircraft. Three prototypes were initially built at Boeing's automated production line in Brisbane as proof of concept for full scale production. Queensland's already home to Boeing's largest workforce outside the United States. The new UAVs will ultimately join the ADF's growing inventory of drones, which will include the new Global Hawk based MQ 4C Tritons, which are designed to work with P 8 Poseidon maritime surveillance aircraft, and the MQ 9 Reaper or Predator B attack and reconnaissance drones. A new study has found that cows like a good old face-to-face chat with people. The research, published in the Frontiers of Psychology, found cows are actually far more relaxed when spoken to directly by a live human rather than when listening to a recorded voice through a loudspeaker. Scientists from the University of Veterinary Medicine in Vienna found that cattle like being patted in combination with gentle talking. The team worked with a herd of 28 cattle, comparing the benefits of either patting the animals while playing a recording of the experimenter's voice, or while speaking to the animal directly as they patted them. After monitoring the animals' responses during the experiments, scientists found that live talking was by far the best mood enhancer for their new bovine friends. They found heart rate variability was higher when cattle were spoken to directly, indicating they were enjoying themselves. And after the treatment, heart rates were lower than after simply listening to a recorded voice. That shows the animals were clearly more relaxed following the live chat. And how do tented cows behave? Well, cows in a relaxed, dare I say, mood, will often stretch out their necks and lower their ears, showing that they're utterly contented. The unrestricted power of social media has taken over the U.S. presidential elections, with Twitter and Facebook being accused of blatant political bias after censoring a series of New York Post exposés over emails on a computer and external hard drive owned by Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden's son, Hunter. The social media giants are locking the accounts of anyone covering or linking to the story. Initially, they justified this, claiming the link was unsafe and could damage computers but that was quickly exposed as a lie. So they later changed their story, instead claiming the article was being censored because it was unsupported hearsay and was obtained illegally through hacking. The incriminating emails were found on an external hard drive and laptop, which Hunter Biden had dropped off at a Delaware computer shop but never returned to pick up, despite signing paperwork agreeing to forfeit the computer and hard drive if he didn't pick them up within 90 days of being told they were repaired. The computer store owner eventually handed the devices over to the FBI, after first taking a copy of their content. The FBI, the Department of Justice and the National Intelligence Director John Ratcliffe have all confirmed that the laptop and external hard drive are genuine and not part of any disinformation campaign. That means they're neither unsupported hearsay, nor were they obtained illegally by hacking. The saga has triggered widespread outrage across the United States over blatant political censorship by Twitter and Facebook, which won't apply the same standards to anti-Trump disinformation or illegally obtained or hacked material about the president. Worse still, it's now been revealed that senior officials behind the censorship decision at both Twitter and Facebook have been contracted to work with the Biden transitioning team, further underlying the politically biased nature of their actions. The unfairness of these actions have again raised questions about whether the tech giants are simply carried services or if their actions prove they're really publishers pushing editorial policies. And that brings into question whether they should continue to get protection from liability under US Section 230 immunity. The Act protects social media providers, preventing them from being considered the publisher or speaker of any information provided on their platform. That way they can't be held liable for statements posted on their sites, unlike regular radio, TV and newspapers, which are ultimately held responsible for everything they publish. Section 230 also allows so-called Good Samaritan protection to remove posts social media providers deem obscene or offensive, as long as it's being done in good faith. And it's that good faith section which they're now clearly abusing. The US Senate is now looking at its options, which could include removing their Section 230 immunity, breaking up the social media giants, or both. The suppression of the contents of the Hunter Biden laptop and hard drive directly challenges the First Amendment. Alex Zahara of Reut from ity.com says freedom of speech should be paramount.
1: The US has something known as the First Amendment, and that's been protected in the Constitution for a couple of hundred years. Now, I know that they're private companies and they can decide what speech they want to allow. But Twitter used to call itself the free speech wing of the free speech party. And for Twitter and Facebook to be going around censoring things, which to me is in direct contradiction to the U.S. you know First Amendment guaranteeing free speech just because they don't like it, is a terrible, terrible thing. And I would love to see private companies in the U.S. are forced to abide by the First Amendment. And, you know, the government gives them a pass to say, look, you cannot be sued for what that person has said, because that person is expressing their free speech rights. Now, obviously, if people start being racist or being nasty and horrible, well, obviously, this is where the problem lies. And this is where companies decide that they want to shut people down and censor them. Well,
0: that's where Section uh, 230 comes in. You know, they can put a warning saying, look, this
1: person expresses racist views, but don't block their speech. Now, people will see that person and they will ostracize them. I just think that the best way is to is to allow free speech. The famous saying is that you give someone enough rope to hang themselves. A person exposes who they are by what they say. And this is a warning to other people that, look, this guy's either really smart or, or crazy. And their speech is censored. How do you know? You know, free speech is either free or you don't have free speech. And I think for the last couple of hundred years, the U.S. has done extremely well in having free speech. And to see companies outright sort of banning the you know, things they don't like, for political reasons or whatever it might be, I think it's a slippery slide down to ever more censorship. And we know that that's not the world we want to live in, at least in the West where, in theory, we're still free.
0: That's Alex of royt from ity.com.